Father in heaven, we pray your spirit today uh, will be with us, will speak to us, will help us understand in our minds what I think we already know in our hearts. Help us, Lord. We want to be, we want to be faithful. We want to be true, honest, sincere. Help us, Lord, as we start this new year uh, to go that direction. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you heard the reading today from the book of Jonah, and, and anytime we pull out the book of Jonah, there's always a certain assumption of where we're going with this, and, and, and I, I do want to walk through this story, but I think we're going to go somewhere a little different than you might have expected. So, so Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, now, uh, you're going to need to take out your Bibles and follow along with me here uh, with the text, because we don't have all the text in today. But uh, I'm using the same translation you have there in front of you. So if you grab one of those Bibles in the seat in front of you, you will have exactly what I do. So Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord... Now again, I'm going to stop right there. Because if you're looking at that passage in the Bible in front of you, you see the word Lord is all capital letters. Even though the last three letters are smaller, they're capitalized. What this means is this is the name of God. And because they didn't like to translate officially the name of God, when you see that in the Old Testament, know that in the Hebrew, that's officially the name of God, but it will show up as the Lord. But we get confused on that sometimes because in the New Testament, there's Lord refers to Jesus, and, and there's all these different things. So it's important to this text that, that we note this because of what's going to happen here and because of the reality of that time the idea of polytheism in that time so now the word of Yahweh or Jehovah is how it used to be uh, translated traditionally we don't actually know exactly the name of God and I think that's probably good but I'm gonna say Yahweh as we read this now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. Now this is an interesting concept, and it's very foreign to us, because we have mostly grown up in a context in an era of what would be referred to as monotheism. There is one God, and that God is everywhere. But this is a different concept than what was the, the normal understanding during the days of Jonah. And the understanding in those days is that there are many gods, and that the different gods have geographic assignments as to where they dwell. So the notion of running away from the presence of God to us seems absurd, but in the context of polytheism, if you just got out of his land, you were potentially out of his presence. Now, Jonah knows better, but he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, so he's doing this anyway. He's, he's trying to get away from the presence of God. So continuing verse 3, so he paid the fare and went down into the boat to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of Yahweh. But Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. <clears throat> then the mariners were afraid, and notice what they did here. 
and each cried out to his God. That, again, that's a foreign phrase to us. We don't, we don't think that way. But what you've got to understand here is you've got, you've got these, the crew of the ship, and they're, they're different nationalities. They're from different places. Maybe some of them are Phoenicians. Maybe some of them are Egyptians. Maybe some of them are Etruscans or whatever the case may be at that point. And they all have the God of their homeland. And so when this storm came up on the sea, they all cried out to their God, whoever it might happen to be, just in case their God somehow was involved in what's happening or their God might have mercy on them, whichever one it might be. Now, this whole story of Jonah, we're using it as a context. But it's not so much about Jonah that I want you to focus today as it is about these mariners, these, the crew of the ship, and how they behaved. Each cried out to his own God. Let's keep going. Verse 4, but... The, but Yahweh hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the, perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. So, so all the others are calling out to all their different gods and, and he finds Jonah down there asleep and he says, what are you doing, man? Get up and call out to your God because none of ours are helping at this point. It's an insight into polytheism and how it worked at the time and to what an unusual thing it was for God to place Israel into the midst of this pagan world and make the claim, I alone am God. Uh, it, uh, it gives perspective and context, if you will, if you look at the way the Ten Commandments read. You read that, that first commandment and it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a polytheism context statement. He's saying, no, I am the foremost God. Another thing, another thing about this is, is David. You see, David makes a determination early in his life that Yahweh is his God, and he will turn to no other. And because of this determination and this singleness of mind, he stays focused on Yahweh, when, when many in Israel would turn to other gods, the Ashtoreths and the Baals and the other things. But David was always singular in his focus. My God, you are my God. Some of these statements sound a little funny to us, but, but if you reflect on them in the context of, of a day when supposedly there was a whole multitude of gods, it was a pretty big deal to say no. I serve Yahweh and Yahweh alone. We need to be this way in our time. But let's go on here. Jonah chapter 1 verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots 
that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So this is really kind of a, a kind of like drawing straws. You get the short straw, it must be your fault, or, or rolling dice or something like this. We smile and laugh at that, don't we? What a ridiculous way to figure out what's going on. Because we're enlightened, we're smart. We know these things. But yet, isn't it ironic that God did, in fact, honor this process sometimes? What are you going to do with that? Do you remember the story of Achan? A curse comes upon the camp of Israel because someone has taken the devoted things from the city of Jericho. All, everything was to be destroyed. And so, so they all gather together and they cast lots and the lot falls to the tribe of Judah and they, they cast lots and it falls to the family of Achan and ultimately it comes down to him and Moses says, tell us what you did and he tells the story that, I mean, this system that we would refer to as random, that it worked. And, and even in the New Testament, if you want to be say, well, those were the superstitious Old Testament people, even in the New Testament, do you remember what happens in the book of Acts, in the very first chapter of Acts, after, after the disciples are gathered together and Jesus has ascended back to heaven, and, and one of the twelve is missing because Judas is gone now, and they determine they need to, to replace him, and so they get two guys who have been there from the beginning, and they say, Lord, you know who you've chosen. And they cast lots. And the lot falls to Matthias. And he becomes a disciple. I, I'm thinking of instituting this in our board. Some of our decision making. You know, kind of free us up. Cut down on debate. We can just roll the dice and move on. No, that's not actually going to happen. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? We're so sure of ourselves, aren't we? We get so haughty and proud of our own realities. But God has worked with lots of foolish people like us before. I guess there's hope in that. That through our processes, maybe he still does lead us as effectively as he did in the past. They cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Once again, this process worked. Jonah, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7, going on, I'm sorry, verse 8. Then they said to him, to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I don't know what your life is like, uh, but I'll tell you a little bit about life as a pastor. The question what is your occupation is never a neutral one. You know, for some of you, you can say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, or I'm a, a manager, or I, I run a store, or something like this. And, and people are like, oh, yeah, and they just kind of respond. You should see people when you say, oh, I'm a pastor. It, it really can chill the, the moment sometimes, particularly if they haven't been careful with their language before that interaction. You can imagine the moment that is about to take place. Here's Jonah in the ship, and they say, So, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm a prophet. Uh, not really a fun moment. 
Verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. They didn't love that idea. Because sailors know if you're in the middle of a storm far from land and you get thrown into the sea, you will die. And they didn't want to do that. To their credit. Verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh. And this is significant here. They're not calling out to God in general. They're calling out to the specific God who they have identified as the cause of the trouble through Jonah. Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Now watch what happens. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now here's the verse I want you to get, and this is really the build-up to where we're going today, and it's really found in this verse. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And probably mostly you've just blown by that passage because it's really not key to what the book of Jonah is about. But I want to slow us down today because we're not talking about what the book of Jonah is about. We're talking about the response of these men to an encounter with Yahweh, the God of heaven. There's an interesting parallel here to when Jesus is with the disciples and he calms the sea. And, and they say, who is this man? And they worshipped him, it says in the New Testament. So here we have in the Old Testament, they, they throw Jonah in and the sea is calmed. And in this powerful moment, they respond. These hardened mariners, these, these sailors. But yet they understood the danger they were in. And so when it happened, it says they feared Yahweh exceedingly and their reaction to this, this fear, in other words, meaning overwhelming respect of this God, they offered a sacrifice and they made vows. You kind of wonder what those vows were, but, but maybe you can imagine if, if you bring us safely through this, then in every port I visit, I will give whatever to whatever, or something like that. I mean, that's the nature of a vow. This is what I will do in response to your deliverance. 
All right, well, that's amusing, I suppose, the silly little pagans, right? Thinking that the right response to God was to offer up a sacrifice and, and to make a vow to Him. I mean, it's not about what I give God, right? But rather it's about the stuff that He gives me, right? If you suspect I'm laying a trap for you, you are correct. What should our response to deliverance be? Are there times when we should make oaths and vows to God, or is it always a bad idea? Or legalistic? I realize I'm treading on dangerous ground here, since... Jesus has actually directly spoken about this. Do you remember this passage? Matthew chapter 5. I'll give you a second to find it so you can see it with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 5. This is in, in the uh, first part of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he's through the Beatitudes and the other things. But, but it's chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus says these words. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So no doubt this is true, but does it apply exactly to the situation here that I have set it in opposition with? Perhaps, perhaps in at least one regard we're speaking of different things here. You see, there is a reality in our lives that from time to time there is an absolute need for us to audibly state our commitment or our intent to be committed to one thing or another. There are times in our lives where we have to make an audible commitment, a vow, if you will. Some examples. A wedding vow. Right? This is a commitment that we make to another person. Another example. There, there are the vows that are made in court. I do solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. These are vows. When you sign your name at the bottom of your tax return, this is a vow that you have reported to the best of your capacity within the, the wildness of the tax system as it is, what you think you might owe or not owe. Yeah, it's a little iffy, isn't it? That one's a little bit scary every time you sign your name there. How do you even know if you got it right? Anyway, these are vows we make. And sometimes they get us in trouble. It's interesting to me to watch what has developed over the years. There were, specifically with the marriage vow, there was the traditional vow. 
And to some people, the, the traditional vow just, yeah, it felt a little, I don't know, a little old-fashioned. And so people come up with their personalized vows. Now, I'm not trying to pick on anybody for that, because that, that's a beautiful thing to do. But, but sometimes in the making up of these personalized vows, we actually lose track of what the wedding vow is actually about. It's not, it's not some expression of of overwhelming emotion in this moment. It's about commitment that is going to begin today and at least according to the traditional vow, stay in place regardless of sickness, health, economics. And it's supposed to last until one of us dies. Maybe it is important for us to rethink these vows if, in fact, we don't take them actually intending to honor them. It's better to not swear anything at all than to swear something and break it. There are times in our life when we absolutely need to indicate what we intend to do or not do and then state it clearly and then we need to do or not do whatever we vowed we would do or not do. But then there's another sense in which we swear, and I don't mean that as in cursing, by which I mean we take some form of an oath. The irony is, we only do it because everybody knows in general we really aren't all that trustworthy. There is your yes yes every time always or is yes just a placeholder you give until you actually figure out what you're going to do yeah 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 I'll do that you're actually not going to do it again I'm not not looking here to just trap us in our words but I do think it would be wise from a human and divine perspective for us to be much more careful with our words than we often are. It seems we pledge ourselves easily and break those pledges almost as easily. And because we are, as humanity, so often untrustworthy, we have to add things to our yes to actually get people to believe us. And I'm guilty here. Not always because of intent to mislead, but sometimes... I just don't take the commitments I get myself into seriously enough to actually carry them out. Let me give you an example. Jeff, will you make sure you take the trash out when you go? You can guess who might be saying that. And what do I say? Yes, I will do that. And soon enough, I'm gone and the trash is not. You ever seen this scenario? I committed in the moment without truly committing to the task. And because this happens all too often, there's almost always a follow-up to my simple yes. Jeff, will you take the trash out when you go? Yeah, yeah, I'll get it. Don't forget this time. That's the follow-up. Why does the follow-up get said? It's because history has shown that in things like this, my yes is not always a yes, and therefore it needs more. Something like, I promise 
I won't forget this time. Is any of this familiar to anybody here? And usually if I've gone far enough to actually say, no, 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 I promise I will do it, then usually I will, although there's even sometimes then that I still fail to get it done. But do you see what's happening here? It would be nice if my simple yes was good enough. But unfortunately it's not, because for me to say yes does not necessarily mean I've truly committed to it in my heart. But if you push me, and I say, no, I promise. See, that's kind of like swearing I will do it. None of this further interaction would be required if I could actually be counted on to always do what I say. And it is unfortunate and hurtful when we do this to each other. But what about when we do this to God? Have you ever said yes to God in response to His leading and not followed through? Well, yeah, obviously we all have. And ironically, because we believe in grace, we sometimes consider it to be a lesser offense to not live up to our pledges to God than to not live up to our promises to each other. That's ironic, isn't it? We offend God almost without thinking because He's so gracious. But man, we're careful about offending each other, right? When we let each other down, there's a relationship price to pay, isn't there? But what happens when we fail God? It's a troubling question to ask. Maybe I should ask it this way. What should happen to me when I lie to God? The Bible is full of stories of people promising God something and failing. Because of that, should we never promise God anything because we don't want to fail? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read you a whole section here. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord, and again, this is Yahweh, but I'll just read Lord this time, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So this is Moses talking to Israel before they enter the land of promise. He's given them God's, God's statutes and laws and commandments. And he says, this is what God has given you that you need to learn so that you will do them in the land you are going over to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. So the idea here is that this is passed along. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. The suggestion of Moses here is that what God has given you is good for you, and if you will do it, it will prolong your days. Verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Ah, to do these things will result in things going well. 
that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now if you ever travel in Israel, it's actually very interesting. and this is not to pick on anybody because we all fail on these things. But sometimes you look at it and it seems like they've, they in many cases have done better with the literal application of this in terms of, of what is described here than in actually living it out. Because sometimes you will see that they will, they will bind uh, something around their arm and they will wear what's called a phylactery on their forehead. And it's a little box and in that box is the law. And if you walk past the houses, nearly every house has outside the door a, a little container, and in that container is the law. So they have literally done these things. They've written them on the doorposts of the house. The, this law is literally there, and you'll see them when they walk out. They'll touch it with their hand. And we might look at that and say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's silly. Okay, maybe. But... Do you hold the teachings of God that close in your own life? I mean, I'm talking to myself here as well. I walk out the door lots of times without thinking that I go out representing God. Without taking His laws with me in my heart. Verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you. Now here's God swearing to us, saying, I I swear I will give you this. With great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. This is exactly what the pagans did, right? When God delivered them from the storm, the first thing they did was they feared Yahweh, and they made sacrifices, and they vowed vows. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember when Jesus quotes this? When he quotes this in the temptation of the devil? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. 
So what about this? What about this passage? Does it say anything at all to us? Or has, has grace wiped all this legalism away? Well, okay, there's a part of me that says yes, but, as the, but at the same time, does that mean how we live, how I live, how you live is irrelevant to God? I mean, talk about putting the Lord to the test, claiming the name Christian and living as anything but. Does that not make a lie of the profession? Does that not make folly of what's been sworn? What should God do to us when we lie? Bible history shows Israel was good at saying yes to God in the moment, but bad at staying true to their word. An example here, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. This is an interesting text, Hosea 11. This is the text that Matthew quotes when, when Jesus goes down to Egypt. He quotes this and says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And maybe in that quotation there's hope for us because the truth of what Hosea 11 says is, I called my son, but he was unfaithful. But then Jesus comes in place of failing Israel and comes out of Egypt and is faithful. So, so there's grace contained within the larger reality. But what about my life? Have I been delivered? Have I been called out of Egypt by God? Have I been called a child of God? Have I done anything different than Israel? The more he called, the more I turned away. We're going to spend a few weeks here at the start of this year on this theme, determinations. Determinations. I don't want to just say decisions. It's a little light. There's lots of stuff I decide and then some new data comes in and I change my mind. I decide something else. Determinations. I guess we could say resolutions, but that's, that's a little tried and tired. Let's, let's say determinations. What have you determined regarding your life? What have you determined about your faith? What have you determined about how you will live? What promises have you made to God? Have you made any promises to God about how you will live? Or what you will do and what you will not do. Or what you will think and what you will try to not think. And how you will love. Have you made any, any promises to God about these things? I mean, let's just pick on the loved one. Jesus said, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, commandment from Jesus. Have you determined to do that? Go back to where we started, the story of Jonah. 
after the mariners with Jonah saw the working of Yahweh, they offered a sacrifice, which means they gave something, and made vows to the Lord. Have you been delivered by God? Have you offered sacrifice? Have you made vows? Or are those just pagan things? I invite the band to come up. We'll sing a few songs here at the end. But as they're coming, we have one more text. And this is back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10 this time. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today. Now catch these words. For your good. For your good. I don't want to push anybody to swear falsely or, or to be a liar to God or to each other. But are you committed to taking the direction of Yahweh? Not for my good, not for His good, but for your good. Now, sure, if, if you commit to following after the Lord and keeping His commandments and do all the yeah, that's going to be for my good. That's going to be for the good of the community because there's nothing better than living around people who keep the commandments of God. Just think about that. We wouldn't lock our homes. We'd have no fear walking around at night. If we lost something, someone would find it and bring it to us. This would be good living. So yeah, I, that'd be good for me. But, but more than it would be good for me, it would be good for you. Or at least that's what Moses is saying. Now in the context of this, remember, Jesus' words are true. We must never vow in a foolish or hasty way. But there are things to which God is calling us as believers to live out in our lives for our own good. There are determinations we must make to be followers of Jesus. And then... And then we must be determined to carry them out. For today, here's where I want to end today. That we would be determined to seek to understand what Jesus is calling each of us. What he's calling me and what he's calling you to do and to be in this time. 2023. Never happened before. Brand new time. Living in a new day. So being exactly what he might have wanted me to be last year may not be exactly what he's calling me to be this year. Maybe I need to grow into something else, something more. So this is the prayer I want you to pray this week. Pray this prayer this week. Jesus, will you show me the life you want me to live? Very simple. Jesus. Will you show me the life you want me to live? Now remember in this, there's nothing to be fearful of here. 
For in Jesus we are saved and accepted as children of God. But rather, this is a question that we ask as a saved child of God. How do you want me to live right now, in this day, in this age, in this place, as a child of God? And what Paul referred to in his day, and I'm sure it applies to ours as well, is in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. How should I live? Not as a slave of sin, surely. Or a slave of fear. Because fear would take us at every turn if we let it. Not, not, not slaves of things we cannot control, but, but rather born to a new life. So what life has Jesus chosen for you? And are you brave enough to live it?